Hello, everyone. I'm here today with writer, historian Oliver Charbonneau to talk about Americans, Moros, and the colonial world, the turn of the 20th century. Welcome, Professor. Oh, thanks for having me, Joe. I'm going to jump right into things, um, ask the big questions first. But, you know, we're talking, like I said, about Moro country, about colonialization. So to start off really broad and grand, why was the U.S. in Sulu Islands, Mindanao? What's the context for uh, this colonialization? And why is it different than the Philippine-American War to its north? I mean, the United States is, is in the southern Philippines uh, at, at the turn of the 20th century um, as, as a, a direct result of the Spanish-American War and, and the sort of the bleed through of the Spanish-American War into the Philippines. Um, the United States comes to its sovereignty claims over Mindanao and the Sulu Archipelago uh, through the Spanish, who themselves sort of claimed these regions as, as part of their colonial empire, uh, but but effectively had never sort of fully colonized the South. Uh, they tried for for centuries. Uh, of course, they they you know the Philippines, uh, the Philippine Archipelago was one of the longest lived colonial possessions in uh, in the history of empire. Or modern empires, at least. Um, so they tried for centuries, but there are these durable sultanates uh, in in the south that were their own sort of power blocks in Southeast Asia. Uh, and so uh, it's not until sort of the latter half of the the 19th century that Spain starts making real inroads uh, into uh, Mindanao and Sulu, and and even then. Um, there are, there are large sort of swaths of, of these territories that are that are not effectively controlled by them. So the, the U.S. sort of comes to this region because Spain tells them, well, this is part of our empire, um, but it's not necessarily. I mean, it, there's, a, there's a far greater degree of autonomy in the south than there is uh, in the north. And let's narrow in on that for a moment to give more context. So how are the north and south of what's officially known as the Philippines different? The north, the north. I mean, they're they're both sort of um, uh, ethno-linguistically diverse spaces, and and of course, my expertise is on the south. Um, so so that's what I'm sort of more comfortable talking about. Um, but I mean, the big difference is that there is there's a far more extensive Spanish colonial state in the north. Uh, there's um, uh, wide-scale Christianization that happens, particularly uh, in the lowland regions uh, of the northern islands. Uh, uh, the the adapt uh, the the uh, the adoption of Spanish in large population centers like Manila, um, whereas the South um, remains um, predominantly Muslim, especially in Western Mindanao and Sulu, um, with uh, uh, indigenous uh, Lumad uh, minority populations. Uh, there is very, very limited uh, histories of Christianization or Hispanization uh, in, in these regions, and there are still sort of very strong uh, indigenous power centers that that exist there so um, we're we're really you know we talk about the Philippines as, as sort of a, a, a unitary uh, space but of course it's it's many many islands and and just even within these islands sort of uh, distinctive sort of sections or groups of islands and so um, the southern Philippines is you know of course part Physically of the archipelago, but it, you know, culturally and, and, and politically and linguistically, uh, not necessarily, um, uh, you know, this is not necessarily a homogenous space that runs the, the entire length of the islands. And so, if you know, we simplify for a mo moment, and, and hearing everything you're saying, if we simplify down, and the U.S. 
fights in the north at the very turn of the 20th century, um, you know, from approximately 1898, 1899, to the very early 1900s. They're in islands like Luzon to the north. Mm -hmm. So from what I understand, in the south, they kind of put the the Sultanate aside, they put the Sulu Islands aside, and they they kind of create this temporary peace. So what... Sorry, actually, let me rephrase that for a moment. Okay, so they create this temporary peace. So before conflict breaks out between, or armed conflict perhaps, breaks out between um, certain Moro groups and the American troops in Mindanao and the Sulu Islands, how do Americans and Moros generally view each other? Going into the turn of the century or the early 1900s, what are the views of these two groups? So, so in this this early sort of um, purely military period uh, between uh, you know roughly 1899 and, and 1902, 1903, um, we're seeing, as you suggest, the Americans using um, sort of different management techniques to avoid a multi-fronted conflict, uh, because of course they're uh, they're fighting against um, uh, Filipino nationalists uh, in the north, and they and they don't want to sort of more or less kick off a separate war. Uh, with the Muslims in the South. Um, in these early years, there is a sort of tentative peace in that the Americans uh, promise that they won't get involved in what they call the internal politics uh, of the various Moro peoples in the South, which is to say that um, uh, a lot of things that uh, a, lot, a lot of sort of um, cultural, political uh, issues that are traditionally governed by uh, Moro chieftains or datus uh, or sultans, uh, they're more or less left alone. Uh, you know, the U.S. sort of claims the right to uh, uh, regulate the, the maritime waters of the region and, and sort of control these power centers in the south. Um, but they, they more or less, um, although not 100%, but more or less leave uh, the, these groups alone and work through collaborationist uh, moral leaders who are, you know, some of whom had worked with the Spanish, uh, who are amenable to uh, a Western sort of colonial presence there, and, and they use them to, um, you know, keep the peace, basically. Do, from an American point of view, I guess, to start with, are there more concrete views of the people of the people in Mindanao, Sulu Archipelago, Moros, at the very beginning of the 20th century. I'm going to repeat that just for mouth noise. Are there more concrete views uh, or caricatures even of um, the people on these southern islands? Um, you know, because I think one of the big sticking points is that a lot of these Datus had slavery. Were there mm-hmm. certain um, images of Moros? Yeah, I mean, there there were there was a, there was an inherited view of Moros, you know, Moro groups from from Spain, um, which you know the Spanish depicted, uh, you know, being a Catholic empire, they depicted uh, Islam as as sort of a savage religion, one that um, that you know uh, was was rife with inveterate polygamists and, and slavers, uh, and and sort of all of these other religiously and racially charged composites that uh, we see during the period. And at the same time, within the United States, you also have a history of, of essentializing uh, Islam 
and, and peoples who, who sort of profess the faith uh, in in ways not too different from that either. So the Americans are, are both sort of inheriting um, specific views of of the Moros uh, from the Spanish, but then they're also sort of bringing over uh, their own stereotypes uh, ab- about uh, Islam. And yeah, some some of those have to do with um, uh, the practice of, of slavery in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, of course, the United States itself is not that far removed from uh, being a slaveholding society, uh, but uh, it's, it's amazing how quickly the memory of that has has sort of uh, evaporated by this point. <laughs> And so just to narrow down for a moment on that, how did Americans generally view Islam or Muslims at the time? I'm, I mean, if, if we were to sort of... Uh, or maybe to rephrase that, like, what are some of the views of Islam and Muslims at the time? The views are, are, are informed by sort of um, uh, wider late colonial views of, uh, of both Islam and, and non-white peoples, which is to say that um, Islam is, is a, you know, viewed as a fanatics religion uh, by a lot of the Americans who arrive in the southern Philippines um, uh, and, and, you know, a religion in need of, of some sort of modern reform uh, to bring it in line with um, uh, the civilizing sort of impulses uh, of of the Americans. I mean, it's something that's being practiced uh, in in uh, British Muslim population amongst British uh, uh, populations. In sorry, I should rephrase that among uh, Muslim populations in in British colonies as well, and 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 uh, the Dutch East Indies and, and other places. Um, yeah, there's a there's a very sort of essentialized view of Islam at this time. And you mentioned uh, civilizing people, which I think is a really good transition to what America was doing specifically in these parts of the archipelago. Um, So the Northern Philippine American War kind of ends or is officially declared over by Theodore Roosevelt in 1902. So why did the U.S. turn more forcefully to the South? What were the main goals and how did um, you know, the official Southern Philippines, Mindanao, Sulu Archipelago fit into an idea of an American empire? So, I mean, they, they turn, uh, you know, as you say, more forcefully to the South in 1903 because military operations are winding down in the North, but something else happens in 1903. And that, that is that, um, the South is is officially partitioned and becomes the Moro province, uh, which is still technically under uh, the governance of the American uh, now civilian administration in Manila, uh, but is is effectively run as its own sort of sub-state uh, by uh, U.S. Army officers. Right, so Leonard Wood, uh, Tasker Bliss, and John Pershing—three of these sort of legendary figures in in the late 19th and early 20th century U.S. military system—they're um, they're the, the the three governors uh, of of the Moro province in the years that it exists. Uh, so the the Moro province becomes a sort of separate space, and it becomes a place where uh, the U.S. military, who are very keen to show uh, how they are sort of at the cutting edge of, of colonial management strategies, as opposed to the civilian administration in the North, where they can sort of enact their own programs for, uh, as they see it, kind of um, reconstituting Moros as as modern uh, American subjects, uh, basically. 
Now, to the second part of your question, where that fits into the sort of larger history of American empire building, uh, it's a question that's contested uh, quite a bit during this time. And and long-term plans for uh, what becomes known as the Moro province really vary depending on who who you're talking to and, and sort of what official uh, you're, you're looking at. Um, for some, uh, there is this idea that that Moros need to be modernized, uh, and you know, in keeping with Western norms, and then Americans need to leave, having done their sort of beneficent civilizational duty. Uh, to to sort of uh, paraphrase, I guess, the mindset of the time. Um, for others, for others, Mindanao should be permanently annexed to the United States in the same way that uh, Hawaii or Puerto Rico was. Um, uh, and, and sort of every sort of gradation in between. So really in this, in this first decade of the 20th century, there's a lot of debate uh, over what to do with this space and what this space ultimately means. Is it a space for civilizational rehabilitation or is it a place where uh, uh, American fortune seekers, much like in you know, the Western uh, frontier territories, can come over and start sort of tropical plantations and make their money? Right? Is it is a space for sort of uh, economic development for Americans? Is it somewhere that the United States wants to keep, or is it somewhere that the United States is acting in kind of a, a caretaker role to to sort of uh, uh, take on the, the progressive language of the time? And I, so I'd say it's, it's, it's unclear. Yeah, <laughs> which is one of the best things of being a historian, right? Is you get to sift through that. Um, yeah. So, how do these different goals? develop and change over time um you know is it like a reflection of the debates that are happening in the u.s the political debates about progressivism and i guess conservatism um you know are they shaped by events on the ground in the larger official philippines how are these different goals working over what is almost a two-decade period I mean, really, what ends up being—I mean, uh, over a two over a two decade period. I mean, how it's uh, how how they're working is is. I mean, we can we can just sort of see this in in the the uh, the very structuring of the southern Philippines over the first couple decades of of the twentieth century. Um, you know, in in the United States, you you have uh, at first this very sort of zealous what what what's you know the term uses you know uh, progressive imperialists and and now I think it's important here to to sort of point out that we're not talking about progressivism in contemporary context but you know this very sort of late nineteenth early twentieth century uh, idea of reform um, that is that is infused with with sort of racial and, and cultural assumptions um, we have these these military figures like Wood and, and Pershing and Bliss uh, who are very much invested in this progressivist idea of of racial uh, reform you know that we find also in other other empires, um, but by the time you know uh, uh, we get to the sort of the eve of, of the First World War and, and the Wilson administration uh, is in power, uh, a lot of a lot of people in the United States are talking about Filipinization and about sort of starting to transition the entire Philippine archipelago away from American colonial rule, and this is when we start to see. Um, you know, officials, uh, Christian Filipino officials being replacing Americans, you know, the U.S. Army leaving and being replaced with Christian Filipinos. And so the very sort of character of governance is changing uh, because uh, because of the sort of changing prerogatives of the U.S. imperial state at this time. Can you and I think that's super important. Can you actually clarify for a moment 
how um can you clarify how some of the goals between Christian Filipinos and American military civilian colonial powers differed at the time? I think I think in, in some ways that's a very sort of uh, simple answer that I that I can give, um, and and that is to say that the American uh, military administrators who are in the southern Philippines in, in the first 15 years or so of colonization uh, are largely very much concerned about um, using the southern Philippines as as a, a sort of uh, uh, a tool of prestige to for, for American sort of to show that Americans can do colonialism uh, better than the Europeans and, and to show and then in, in specific, specifically within the, the Philippines that the army can do uh, colonial management better than uh, the civilians in the north can um, for them, there is, uh, you know, the pre the American presence in the in this in Mindanao and the Sulu Archipelago is potentially indefinite. You know, it's 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 indeterminate. Um, but when when that sort of indefinite period comes to a, a very uh, uh, unceremonious halt, um, the Christian Filipinos who are replacing them are thinking primarily about uh, the Southern Philippines as part of a nation building project. Right of integrating um, what they see as as these sort of unused or underused spaces uh, into uh, this larger sort of nascent nationalism uh, that's that's emerging in the Philippines and and that really is going to pick up speed in the 1920s and 30s uh, and and come into full bloom obviously after independence in 1946. So two you know two very very sort of different outlooks on 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 what what these spaces mean. And I, I in some ways it's it's. <laughs> In some ways, in retrospect, it is really obvious to us that those two differences would develop. I mean, I don't know if imperialists in America at the time really expected that, but there's a difference between, you know, living in the archipelago and being thousands of miles away in California or, or D.C. even. So, so the thing that we haven't quite narrowed down on yet is we've talked about Americans, civilians, and military. We've talked about Northern Filipinos and um, more majority Christian Filipinos and, and the nascent nationalism, as you said before. But what were the feelings of different Moro leaders on the ground in the Sulu Archipelago and Mindanao? I think here it's it's important to um, differentiate uh, between the the separate ethno-linguistic groups uh, of Moros uh, that we find not I mean not to mention Lumad which we're not really talking about here um, that we find uh, in in Mindanao because you know they all have sort of very different perspectives and and they are um, competing and resisting and collaborating with the American colonial state and then also you know. Um, Competing and collaborating and resisting um, one another and and Christian Filipino groups uh, as well. So um, you know because of these different political histories and, and trajectories and um, imperatives that all of them have, um, it's it, it's kind of it's important to, to to sort of think about this not sort of as Americans just governing Moros, but Americans um, governing either. Uh, 
I'm trying to think of the best way to term this. Americans governing either um, with the with the assistance of or with resistance from uh, a whole bunch of different groups with their own uh, with their own interests. Um, so in some cases, I, I think as I as I mentioned earlier, um, we see um, powerful figures like Datu Piang of, of Cotabato or Datu Mandi of Sambuanga uh, Peninsula. Uh, working alongside the Americans in the same way that they had worked alongside the Spanish, sort of rec- recognizing that uh, their power uh, could could be uh, amplified or accentuated by the the presence of the Americans there, um, uh, or you know, in certain cases, they could sort of selectively choose what they wanted to take from the American colonial rulers and and resist other things. Um, we have uh, these figures who end up capturing the, the American imagination, like the the Sultan of Sulu, uh, who are really um, used by the Americans, but but also really ha- you know is 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 politically and culturally sidelined uh, by by the by the American presence uh, in in the Sulu archipelago. Um, and then we have other other figures like Datu Ali, uh, who is a, a, a Maguindanao royal, uh, uh, or a number of different Maranao sultans up around Lake Lanao and Mindanao, uh, or the pirate Jakiri, who who choose open resistance to the Americans, who see no who see no real benefit of of working alongside them, or who see um, the reconfiguring designs of the colonial state as a real uh, and rightfully so as a real threat to. Um, uh, their way of life, and, and in the case of these leaders, their their individual power as well. Was there ever an effort or efforts to unite in one, I guess, more pan-Moro, anti-American group? Was there ever a united front against the Americans? No, I mean that's that's uh, you know the, the the story of the Banks of Moro and and this kind of. Um, uh, uh, more unitary, but frag- for also still internally fragmented Moro identity is really something that uh, is is uh, more of a discussion in the in the post independence Philippines. Um, we really don't see too much of that uh, under U.S. rule. And to clarify, why do you think that was? I mean, I, I suppose I mean for for the reason why you know. Uh, the different peoples of Europe uh, don't sort of unite as as a as a as a common whole. Um, these are these are regional groups, all with you know their own relationships with one another, but their own specific histories that are that are you know based on on language and culture and, and also sort of geography, right? The uh, the Maranao peoples of, of the Mindanao interior uh, have a very different experience with Spanish colonialism, which doesn't penetrate. As far inland uh, than the say the Sema Bajau or the Maguindanao people who are coast dwelling peoples who have to deal with this with Spain again and again and again over centuries, um, and and likewise for the Sulu Archipelago who have their own sort of histories as well. Um, I think I think because you know uh, in the same way that you know perhaps the the term Filipino is a is a sort of flattening or homogenizing term for a lot of different peoples uh, who have complex relations with one another uh, the term moro is you know can can likewise sort of flatten um, some of these differences uh, and and really we're talking about you know in, in the moro province we're talking about the americans kind of act, you know dealing with indigenous power you know by locality and, and region and, and and sort of trying to negotiate it gotcha and so and so wrapping up 
what other goals uh, or perspectives have we not touched upon? Was there anything during your research for civil? Was there anything for your research during civilizational imperatives that surprised you about the goals of either Moros, Christian Filipinos, Americans, Europeans, and even Spaniards if they're still there? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there was, there was uh, plenty, plenty that surprised me. Um, of course, you know, when, when I went into the project, I, uh, I thought about uh, the relationship between um, Moro groups and, and, and Americans in, in, in completely oppositional terms uh, and didn't think about sort of not only um, some of the selective accommodations that were happening um, and, and, and sort of uh, hybridities of identity, uh, but also, you know, the way that in, in the, especially in the 1920s and 30s, um, moral groups who were at that point much more afraid of Christian Filipino hegemony uh, and, and sort of the, the incoming era of independence, um, you know, would, would look to the Americans um, uh, with, with a certain sort of form of nostalgia or to look look to particular Americans who still supported uh, the, the partition and annexation of the Southern Philippines for form some forms of protection, um, which suggested to me that, you know, these relationships ended up being um, a lot, a lot more uh, complex and, and multidimensional than, than sometimes has been portrayed in, in sort of traditional accounts of the, the so-called moral wars. And I think that is a really good transition for ending this conversation. We're going to follow up and talk again about some of the context, more realities of the Moro Wars, colonization, um, and the period from early 1900s to uh, around World War I and the 19-teens in our following episode. So thank you so much, Professor Charbonneau. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it.